Uh, we're coming uh, to the close of the first uh, quarter of this uh, series that in, intends at least to last for a couple of years. Uh, we've got a very long way to go if we're going to cover the whole scope of uh, what the Bible teaches about, uh, about everything. Uh, but we've been examining the doctrine of God, uh, what uh, theologians in the past have called um, theology proper. And tonight we're going to be looking at uh, the righteousness uh, and the immutability of God. Now if you turn to the very last page, actually it's not in my copy of it, but if you turn to the very last page of your copy, not uh, not the points of prayer page, but the last page of the outline on the bottom, uh, you'll see an email address uh, for Sarah, my secretary here at the church, uh, to whom you may send uh, your questions that have been keeping you awake at night, uh, questions about uh, impassibility or the simplicity of God, or one, one of these abstruse topics that we've been covering along the way. Uh, and that's for next week. Now, I, I understand uh, some of you have turkeys to cook or catch, even. Um, and uh, so you, you may not be here, uh, but others of you who just turn up and eat, uh, you have no excuse whatsoever, and uh, so I, I'm expecting you here. Uh, there's also a very modern, hip way that you can send me some questions, and actually you'll be able to do it uh, in situ uh, from your chair, and that is you can, you can tweet your question. Now, I, I'm speaking beyond that which I understand, and I do need to speak to Jay in a few minutes afterwards uh, to make sure that I, I fully understand what it is that I'm telling you to do. Uh, but um, th there is a method, you go to the Facebook page, and uh, we, will, uh, we will make this very clear to you. Jay will make it very clear to you on the Facebook page, the address of which is there on the front page, page one, uh, underneath the title, uh, Centus Point School of Theology. And uh, those of you who, who can and are able to tweet from your cell phone, uh, you, you, you may, we'll try this out. Uh, and and I'll, I'll censor the questions uh, on the spot. Any, any ridiculous questions will just get erased and, and an electric shock will come back uh, in, your, uh, in your direction. But uh, we, we, we would like a number of questions in advance, if that's possible. Uh, so do send in your questions, and, uh, and we'll be recording the session, so even if you have a question and you won't be able to, hear cause, to be here because you're still catching the turkey, then uh, you, you will be able to hear the answer um, in the usual way by, by going online and, and downloading. Well, that's enough of that. Let's turn now to the righteousness uh, and the immutability, a little bit at the end, about the immutability of, uh, of God. Now, the scriptures are very clear uh, that God is righteous, and uh, I have uh, put a number of texts here. One from Isaiah 45, 21, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God, and a savior there is none besides me. Or Psalm 45, one of the great uh, Christological psalms, 
Uh, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of, of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. God is righteous. He loves righteousness. Or Psalm 97 and verse 2, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Uh, note there the, the uh, two words, righteousness and justice. Uh, there is a strong connection, as we shall see in a minute, between righteousness and justice. There is a, a justice component to the idea uh, of righteousness. And then uh, perhaps uh, one of the most important passages in the New Testament. Uh, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, um, I think it was, drew a heart uh, in his Bible next to this passage because he felt this passage was the heart of the gospel. Uh, in Romans 3:21 and following, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Remember, Paul has said back in chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 uh, that, uh, that uh, the gospel is, uh, is about the righteousness of, uh, of God. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed uh, uh, from faith to faith and uh, now he's picking up that theme again in chapter 3 the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law uh, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe uh, and then he goes on to speak about uh, the work of Christ there is no distinction all have sinned fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show what? God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now it's important, just, just as we were considering last week with the doctrine of God's holiness, that in Hebrew and Greek, uh, it's the same group of words for holiness and sanctification. In English, we don't have a verb to holify. We, we, we use a different word, but it's the same thing. Holiness and to sanctify are the same thing, but two different words in English, but they're the same word. Uh, in Hebrew and the same word in Greek. Well, similar thing here in uh, uh, words for righteousness and justice uh, and, and to justify. Uh, the language of New Testament language of justification, it's the same, belongs to the same group of words uh, in the Hebrew and Greek as the words for, uh, for uh, righteousness. Sadiq. Uh, 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 in, in Hebrew, God is righteous. We've seen that in, uh, Psalm for, in Isaiah 45, 21. God is righteous. Uh, 
Uh, it's, a, it's a characteristic of God. Uh, it's, it's something that God is in his essence, in his nature. It's a personal quality of God. He is righteous. Now, et- etymology, uh, and uh, we talked, we've talked a couple of times about the, the so-called etymological fallacy. That is, a, a word doesn't mean what its root means. Uh, a word means what it means in its context. Words can, can transform uh, through generations. Uh, we, well, I say we, uh, I'm going to repent and say you say uh, awesome in a way that uh, your forefathers would not have used that word awesome. Uh, and you're about to uh, develop a different, entirely different meaning to the word awesome than what it meant, say, a hundred years ago. Uh, or what it still means in your hymnology. Um, but etymology suggests that, uh, that sadiq in Hebrew means something along the lines of straightness. Uh, straightness meaning conformity to a rule. Uh, conformity to a, a, a maxim of some kind. Uh, God, uh, God executes justice, either punishment or vindication or protection, because he is righteous. Uh, there's a connection between the idea of justice uh, and the idea of God's righteousness, God's straightness, God's, God's unflinch, unflinching conformity to a rule, to a standard. It's the way he is. Uh, and you can see, perhaps already, why... The, the idea of righteousness uh, is connected with the idea of immutability. Immutability simply means God cannot change. Right? So later on in, in our hour together, we'll talk about God's immutability. That's why these two things are often considered together. God is unflinchingly uh, committed to a certain standard. It's the way he is. It's his own standard. It's his own character. It's the way he is. Uh, in Greek, uh, dikaios, dikaiosone, uh, righteousness, uh, conf- conformity to a standard. Same idea in uh, Greek as in Hebrew. Now, uh, this is just a matter of fact uh, that for a thousand years from Augustine uh, right through to the period of the Reformation, a thousand years and more, uh, most of theology, at least in the West, in the Western Church, uh, theology was done through the medium of Latin, uh, the Latin language, uh, which did not uh, distinguish between righteousness and uh, justice. And uh, that has led uh, some, top of page three, uh, that's led uh, to a furor uh, that's uh, a fire that's burning. Uh, today, uh, some of you perhaps are completely unaware of it, and you are blissfully uh, unaware of it. Uh, but there is a fire raging, and it rages uh, not far from the corridors of this church. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it certainly uh, burns uh, in seminaries and uh, uh, in the world of publications and literature, uh, and in uh, some of our denominations for sure, uh, over this issue of how uh, possibly the, the Latin use of righteousness, the Latin use of, of uh, justificare in Latin, uh, uh, the, 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 almost the equivocation of uh, righteousness and justice in the medium of Latin has distorted, 
uh, our understanding of the biblical concept of righteousness and the biblical concept of justification. Uh, Some of you will have heard, we're not going to go into this tonight, but we'll come to it later when when we talk about justification. Uh, the doctrine of justification is uh, a doctrine that's uh, right in the crosshairs of much debate uh, today because there are some uh, who uh, are advocating that the church, the Reformation church, Luther, and, and uh, that means us, uh, who subscribe to the Westminster Confession, uh, that we have seriously misunderstood the doctrine of justification uh, because of uh, the way in which the Latin language has distorted the meaning of the biblical meaning of justification or the biblical meaning of, uh, of righteousness. Now, that door is sort of a jar in this lecture. I'm not going to go through that door. I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait uh, until we get to a uh, discussion of the doctrine of justification, but what we will say about the doctrine of justification is largely governed by the conclusions that we draw here with respect to the idea, the biblical idea and the biblical concept of righteousness. So we need to look at what does the word righteous mean in the Bible. And uh, let me say, uh, let me say uh, in answer to that charge... Uh, about, about Latin distortion, and it's, a, it's a, f- uh, a charge that's made with a great deal of frequency today, um, that it is perhaps 5% true, but no more than that. Uh, I, I, I think that in its essence, uh, Luther's understanding of justification, governed as that largely was by a Latin use uh, of, of terms for sure, but I would say that 95% of what Luther was saying was spot on, biblical, and sound. Uh, perhaps there's a nuance here that we need to bring uh, into play that, uh, that, that Luther didn't uh, emphasize a great deal. Um, but if you, say, if you say the Church of the Reformation has completely misunderstood uh, the doctrine of justification, even those critics are saying that the Roman Catholic Church misunderstood the doctrine of justification. In other words, the answer to the question, how is a person saved, has been misunderstood until the last 15 or 20 years. That is, that is unbelievable. I mean, that takes a great deal of, of credulity even to suggest such a thing. Um, and uh, a, great deal of, uh, a great deal of attention is being given to that issue right now. Well, I'm going to try and close that door now. I'm getting back to the, to the topic of, of righteousness. Let's, let's look at some biblical foundations uh, early on in Genesis. Genesis 6 and verse 9, a uh, statement about Noah. Noah was a righteous man, uh, blameless in his generation. I, I think uh, blameless stands there in the sentence by way of explaining to you what he means by saying that Noah is righteous. Noah is righteous, that is to say he was without blame. He was blameless, not that he was perfect, um, but that he was, that he was a godly man. He was, he was looked at and, and, and assigned by God as, as a righteous man. He walked uh, with God. Now, where, uh, where did they get this notion of righteous from? Of course, this is Moses uh, writing this, but, uh, but uh, Moses is saying that he was regarded as a righteous man in his own day. Uh, where did they get this notion of righteousness from? 
because if, if righteousness is conformity to the law, right, to a standard, conformity to the Ten Commandments, well, the Ten Commandments are not given in Noah's time. That came in Moses' time. So where did they get the concept, the idea of righteousness? And, and the answer to that is that they must have gone back to paradise. And they must have taken with them from paradise by oral tradition down through the generations from Adam uh, to Noah. They took with them ideas of what is good, what is right. Uh, what does it mean to be in a right standing and in a right relationship with God? Righteous here then is synonymous with blamelessness. Righteous is a state of being without fault or blame. Uh, let's go to the book of Psalms, Psalm 103, 17 uh, and 18. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Now, this is interesting because you've got a combination of ideas here. You've got steadfast love, that's a that's a buzz term in the Old Testament, often associated with the idea of covenant. Uh, you've got the word covenant itself here in the passage, and then you've got the word righteousness. So you've got steadfast love, covenant, and righteousness. Uh, and that, that leads to the idea uh, that righteousness has the connotation in the Old Testament of covenant loyalty or covenant faithfulness. Now, it can mean more than that, but it means faithfulness to to the covenant, covenant faithfulness. Uh, Isaiah 42.6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. Uh, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Uh, and again, uh, there is a, an association of the idea of righteousness with the idea of covenant. So let's... Uh, uh, let's proceed to some kind of definition of the word righteous or righteousness uh, in the Old Testament. Conformity or loyalty to the covenant. Uh, it, has, uh, it has the idea of straightness or consistency uh, with a norm. Uh, and perhaps the idea of integrity within a given uh, relationship. Now, because righteousness, and uh, this is where we need to think uh, clearly for a minute, because righteousness is conformity to covenant, there are necessarily two aspects. One is commitment to bless, and another is a commitment to curse. Right? When you think of covenants in the Old Testament, when God enters into a covenant, there is a, there is a blessing on the one side and there is a cursing on, on the other side. There is the idea of reward and punishment. And historically, I think some have emphasized one and not the other. And I think that's a part of the problem that's arising uh, today in so-called uh, new perspectives uh, on, uh, on Paul or new perspectives on the idea of justification. Now let's look at those two aspects of righteousness and, and we call them uh, retributive uh, and remunerative. Uh, retributive and remunerative righteousness. Um, and we're going to look at uh, retributive righteousness to begin with. Uh, think of the word retribution. Uh, retributive righteousness. Uh, righteousness as the judicial 
reaction of God to sinfulness and evil. Uh, The text uh, that we had on Sunday morning uh, from uh, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk 1 and verse 13, uh, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Uh, the purity of God and uh, what, what, is, what is the response of the purity of God towards sin. Uh, Daniel 9.14, the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has uh, done. Uh, the, the idea of God's judicial um, response to, to sinfulness. Now this is, this is the idea that came to the surface in, uh, in Martin Luther at the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther is uh, reading the book of uh, Romans. Uh, he's, uh, he's reading that statement in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, uh, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed uh, from faith to faith. Uh, what does the righteousness of God mean for Luther? It means God's purity. It means God's integrity. It means his conformity to law. Uh, so the righteousness of God for Luther was a thing that caused him fear. He was, he, he was unrighteous and God was righteous. God was pure, he was impure. God is without sin, Luther is full of sin. The more he tried to obey the law, the more he tried to conform himself to the standard of God's law, the more he realized he was a sinner. And the righteousness of God was something that was altogether threatening. The, the, the righteousness of God meant that he was going to be punished. God is pure, God is just, God is righteous. And that means that unrighteousness cannot, cannot occupy the same space as righteousness. So he views the righteousness of God as something that is negative, as something that's punitive, something that's judicial, something that threatens. Well, how, how can Paul say uh, that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's, it's a statement about the righteousness of God? The, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, but the righteousness of God for Luther was something that, that terrified, something that threatened, something that threatened punishment. So he says, uh, I'm quoting now from uh, uh, his own uh, commentary on Romans, his introduction to the commentary on Romans, which is cited in this well-known uh, biography uh, by uh, Roland Bainton. Uh, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Now, now in Latin, of course, the righteousness of God and the justice of God, justificare, uh, justus, in Latin, same word in Latin. So in, in, his, in his Bible, in the, in the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate Bible that he's reading, it's the justice of God. Right? The righteousness of God was the justice of God. Uh, So that one expression, the justice of God, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. He saw, do you see, that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. But where is that righteousness of God that God demands of us, where is that righteousness to be found? It is to be found in Jesus. It is to be found by faith in Jesus. Uh, Luther, of course, is, uh, is, is viewing the cross in, a, in, a, in, a, in an Anselmian way. He's viewing the cross uh, as, as, a, as one that speaks of 
of substitution and satisfaction. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? He satisfied all the demands of the law. He, he obeyed the law. He, 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 he provided a complete righteousness. And that righteousness of Christ is imputed, it is reckoned to the account of the sinner through the instrumentality of faith. God demands integrity. God demands uprightness. God demands conformity to the law. How can that be achieved? By faith alone in Christ alone. What did we just sing? Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are. Right? Luther, Luther looked at the righteousness of God and he was terrified. Because the righteousness of God spoke to him of, ret- of retribution. Retributive righteousness. It was a righteousness that threatened But where did it threaten? It threatened his son. It threatened the Lord Jesus. That punitive justice was meted out on his son. God did not spare him, but freely delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us uh, all things? It's the gospel that Luther saw. Uh, But what he saw, of course, was retributive righteousness. And that retributive righteousness is meted out on Jesus as our substitute And sin bearer. Now turn the page to page five. All that was relatively easy. Um, Now I need you to put your thinking caps on, and uh, and then then you may wonder what it is that uh, professional theologians actually do. Uh, What they do is they ask questions like this. Uh, Let me see if I can give it a fair trial. I think this is this question is out of order completely, but I need you to know that this question has been asked. Uh, And it's been asked by no less a person than Samuel Rutherford. This is uh, the sands of time are sinking, uh, Samuel Rutherford. This is a good guy. Uh, This is is Samuel Rutherford. He's a Scotsman. Dr. Ferguson isn't here, so there's no point in me saying this. Um, The question has been asked theoretically, is the retributive righteousness of God discretionary? Is, Is God's response to sin something which he has willed and that he could have willed to be otherwise now while you're still pondering why anybody would ask that question uh, read uh, Samuel Rutherford's statement uh, just beneath his picture Uh, God punishes sin by by, and I've missed out a very important word Uh, God punishes sin by by no necessity of nature. You need to stick in the word no. God punishes sin by no necessity of nature. Nay, if he chose, he might leave it altogether unpublished. Make sure I correct this online. Um, God punishes sin by no necessity of nature. Nay, if he chose, he might leave it altogether unpunished. Now, why would anyone, and uh, William Twist, uh, this fine-looking dude below, uh, William Twist, uh, you should understand, was the chairman of the Westminster Assembly, uh, which brought forth the Westminster Confession, Shorter Catechism, Larger Catechism. Uh, this guy was the chairman, uh, and he was uh, a theologian and then some. Uh, wrote a 900-page uh, book on uh, supralapsarianism. 
and, uh, and why we should all uh, confess it. Uh, God, by his absolute power, setting aside his decree or free constitution, can forgive sin without any satisfaction. Now, why would anyone uh, say such a thing? Because if you, if you think of God as first of all sovereign, right? His, his sovereignty is paramount over everything. His lordship is paramount over everything. That is, his sovereignty can will something other than what we actually know. Now, that's theoretical theology at its very worst, uh, but it was, uh, and I have, I have no time for that kind of theology. I think uh, Rutherford and Twiss are absolutely wrong. Uh, and um, uh, if you're interested, I can tell you where you can go and uh, read some more about that. But that, uh, I, I put it in here simply to show you that sometimes you can do theology just in your head. Uh, and then you can run, and you can run, and you can run, and you've lost sight of the Bible. And, and all of a sudden you're asking not theological questions, but you're actually, you're actually asking what are philosophical questions. And they are theoretical questions. And I have no interest in theology that isn't rooted in the Bible and that isn't of immediate pastoral significance. Um, but uh, that's an example, it's an example from the 17th century, of how uh, theology can sort of take on, take on a life of its own and find itself in a place that's a million miles away, I think, from uh, the revelation of God uh, in the Bible. If you come back uh, to the revelation of God in the Bible, uh, you have statements like Genesis 18:25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just uh, and what is right? In other words, the implication is that God always needs to be just, uh, but does not always need to be merciful. Um, now, some, some have uh, uh, objected on other, uh, re, uh, other grounds about the relationship between justice and mercy, uh, but I'm going to pass uh, over all of that. Uh, for time considerations and turn to page 7 I, I want us to look at remunerative righteousness remunerative righteousness and I want you to consider with me something I have a suspicion that some of you have not really thought about or, or if you have you've pondered some of these verses and wondered quite what do they mean S Psalm 4 and verse 1 answer me when I call O God of my righteousness. Right, you go before God and you remind him that he is righteous. And you want him to answer in his righteousness. And I, I have a suspicion that some of you are going to say, No, I don't want God to answer in his righteousness. I want him to answer in his mercy. I don't want him to answer as somebody who is sitting on a court of law as a judge. I want him to an answer as a heavenly father who loves me. Psalm 35, verse 24. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. I wonder how many of you have prayed that. Sh show me to be in the right. Actually, show the work. Show my enemies that I am in the right. And do so because you are a God of integrity. Because you are righteous. Some of you should be thinking of the book of Job. 
Because that's what Job is doing. That's, that's Job's argument, that he is in the right, right? That he is, a, uh, that he is innocent. Not that he is without sin, but that he's innocent. And he wants God to vindicate him. Psalm 103 in verse 17. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Now if you think of righteousness as God's retribution upon sin... Right? That doesn't fit in this text. This, this text. this text is supposed to produce the warm and fuzzies here. Right? The psalmist is saying the steadfast love of God is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. If you're thinking of righteousness solely in the way that Luther was thinking of, of righteousness, n- namely God's punitive justice upon, upon sin... How is that, a, a, how is that a, a pleasant thought, that God's righteousness is upon your children's children? Uh, what the psalm has in mind here is something positive, something that brings assurance, something that brings confidence. Uh, Isaiah 46 and verse 13, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. What does that mean? Uh, Isaiah 51, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth. Uh, look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they will dwell in it, will die uh, in like manner. But my salvation, but my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Right, this is a... This is a positive view of righteousness. This is, uh, this is remunerative uh, righteousness. Uh, these texts are advocating God's commitment to covenant promise rather than covenant threat. Uh, uh, at the beginning of our time together, we, we said that righteousness uh, in the Old Testament especially is associated with the idea of covenant. That God will keep covenant. Now what does that mean? That that God keeps his covenant. Well he keeps his covenant which has both blessings and threats. They have blessings and curses. To to the one who is outside of Jesus. God's God's covenant faithfulness will mean that that person will ultimately be judged. To the one who is in Jesus, to the one who believes the gospel, God's covenant faithfulness means he will never leave you nor forsake you. Here is the psalmist, you see, and he's saying, uh, he's pleading here the righteousness of God. But he's pleading the righteousness of God, which means for for the psalmist and for, I think, in Isaiah 46 and 51, that God is so committed to his covenant that the person who is in Jesus, who is now imputed with the righteousness of Jesus, I can come before God and I can say, look at my righteousness. Because it's the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's the righteousness that is reckoned to me in the gospel. Now, emphasizing uh, retributive righteousness or remunerative righteousness, emphasizing one to the exclusion of the other, 
uh, results uh, in uh, expressions like these, and um, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of them. Uh, one uh, from Albrecht uh, Rischel in the 19th century, God's righteousness is his self-consistent and undeviating action in behalf of the salvation of the members of his community. In essence, it is identical with his grace. Now, there is an aspect of that which is true if, if Rachel was only talking about the remunerative righteousness. But righteousness in God means his commitment to his covenant, which involves curses and blessings. It involves judgment upon sin as well as showing mercy to those who are in Christ. Right? So there are two aspects to the righteousness of God. And, uh, and uh, uh, Rachel, one, one of the great fathers of liberalism in the 19th century, is merely emphasizing one aspect at the expense of the other. Uh, I also want to suggest that that's in part uh, what is taking place in modern uh, discussions on uh, so-called new perspectives on Paul and uh, new perspectives on the idea of righteousness and justification in the New Testament. And I've got a, uh, I've got a little quotation there uh, from uh, one of its principal exponents, namely, uh, namely N.T. Wright. Now, uh, how can that righteousness operate, operate uh, remuneratively? And let me, uh, let me suggest... Uh, a couple of answers here. Uh, when the nation keeps covenant, uh, Exodus 23, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Right? Israel, uh, under the Old Testament, this is, a, a prom- this is not a promise to the United States of America. You understand that. This is a promise to Israel. Uh, it's similarly a promise to the, to the New Testament church, by the way. Uh, but this is a promise to Israel as a theocratic state. So that so long, so long as they walked faithfully in God's ways, God would keep his covenant with them. God would bless them. He would be an enemy to their enemies. That's the promise that was made. They would, they would see remunerative righteousness. Or Deuteronomy 28.1. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. This is the repeated promise, the promise of Exodus uh, 23, but it's repeated now in the plains of Moab just before they cross over into the promised land. Moses uh, repeats this covenant promise to Israel uh, that if if they are faithful to the covenant, God will be faithful to the covenant too. Uh, and he will exalt them high above all the nations of the earth. Now what happens when the nation uh, is unfaithful, as it was in the time of uh, Elijah or, or Isaiah, uh, pre-exilic prophets Amos and uh, Micah? Uh, well, uh, they, are, they are still sometimes loved for the Father's sake. Uh, God's mercy extends to children's children. Uh, The steadfast love of the Lord, uh, his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant. Uh, And there's also, of course, a a sense in which even even in the retributive justice of God, what is the exile? Why why did they go into exile? They went into exile because they failed to walk according to the covenant. And And they experienced not 
the remunerative righteousness of God, but they experienced the retributive righteousness of God. God punished them. But there was still remunerative righteousness even in that punishment. There was the remnant, according to the election of grace and even out of uh, the exile. Uh, the Daniels and the Ezra's and the Nehemiah's and, and so on. All of these uh, uh, can be seen. Can individuals like, uh, like you and me, can we plead the remunerative righteousness of God? Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. Can you plead that? Can you... Uh, have you ever prayed that? You've gone before God and you say, Lord, uh, look upon my righteousness. Look upon my integrity. See, you're good, uh, you're good evangelical, reformed Christians. Uh, you believe in the doctrine of total depravity. You come pleading for mercy, don't you? you? You come confessing your sin and you plead for mercy. You say, I don't want justice, I want mercy. But uh, supposing, and, and bear with me, and, and please, please forgive me if I step on somebody's toes here. Uh, I, just want a, I just want a very stark example. But supposing, supposing you're a victim of rape. You're an innocent victim. You're a totally, totally innocent victim. And, and you're a victim of this atrocity. This, this horrible, horrible thing has happened to you. And uh, the victim is uh, getting away with it. And you come before God and you say, Lord... Because I'm a believer, because I'm in Jesus Christ, look on me. This this was not my fault. And I want justice here. I want you you to come. And and I want you to come in blessing. I want you to come with your remunerative righteousness. Uh, Vindicate me, O Lord, my God. Isn't that what Job is doing? Now, you know, as you read the book of Job, you, you might be tempted to say halfway through the book, well, no one is that pure. You know, when Job is, is uh, pleading his innocence chapter after chapter after chapter, and then you sort of suddenly blurt out and you say, well, nobody is that pure. But the fact is that God says so. God says right at the beginning of the book of Job, three times he says at the beginning, that he was a, a morally upright man. He feared God. He shunned evil. He was the godliest man on the face of the earth. And he's pleading for vindication. He wants a fair trial. He's pleading the remunerative remunerative, uh, righteousness of uh, of God. I think think we do it this way. We we say, um, when, when uh, when the Lord looks on us, look at 1 John 1, 9. Uh, you'll see the text on top of page 10. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. Now, there's a sense in which John is saying, if, he, if you are in Christ... You come before God with your sins as somebody who is in Christ. The just thing for God to do is to forgive you. Wow. Really? Yeah, that's what John is saying. He's saying, he's saying you come before God and you say, 
Jesus has died for these sins. He has taken the full unmitigated wrath of retributive righteousness. He's taken it all. You have no, you have no, no choice here but to forgive my sin. That's the boldness. That's, that's the gospel audacity of what John is saying here. God is faithful and just because it's the just thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Because Jesus has already paid the penalty. Christ has kept covenant for us. You see, there is a sense, despite the fact that we are sinners, there is a sense in which in Christ we are covenant keepers. But we are covenant keepers in Christ. We are law keepers in Christ. We wear the spotless robe of Jesus Christ and we, 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 we hold it up before God. Deal with me according to my righteousness, my, the imputed righteousness of Christ. So, so it's the just thing to bless me. That'll test, that'll test how much you believe the gospel. But really tests it, doesn't it? Whether we really believe the gospel. That in the gospel, the, the, the spotless righteousness of Christ is reckoned to our account. Well, some, some, some uh, edgy things now. Uh, page 10. If God is righteous, just, um, not, only is, not only is God righteous, but God does righteousness. And you see uh, provisions in uh, the Old Testament uh, law code. Uh, for food, uh, for the poor, gleaning, the, 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 the laws of Israel uh, with respect to gleaning, uh, or the laws of Israel with respect to usury, uh, not, uh, not uh, lending uh, with interest to your brother uh, who is in need. It wasn't a, wasn't a, a carte blanche uh, uh, forbidding of, uh, of all lending with interest, but it was a particular, it was a particular uh, law to those who are poor. Uh, a brother uh, in, in, in need and that, and that you didn't charge usury. Uh, or the provision of land in the year of Jubilee, uh, that all land reverted to the family. Or clothing, uh, you know, um, if, if you pawned your, your cloak, it had to be given back at night uh, so, that, uh, so that the person uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't uh, uh, die of cold uh, in, in the night. Uh, the provision for a fair trial, uh, you shall not bear false witness, and so on. Uh, there is a, the, God is righteous, God is just, he does justice, he loves righteousness, and you see that in the provisions that God made for the land of Israel. Uh, the question that I want you to think about and ponder is, what does that look like in, uh, in a just society? What does a just society look like? Well, we're not a theocratic society, we're not Israel, uh, but what, what, how do you apply the laws of righteousness uh, in a modern society? Um, Paul says uh, that we are to make prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all people, kings, all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What kind of, uh, what kind of laws uh, would, would need to be passed reflecting the righteousness of God, the justice of God in a modern society so that, uh, so that Paul's prayer there in First Timothy 2 can be fulfilled? 
I'm sure you're going to answer that in different ways, but I wanted to start thinking about that. Uh, how, would you, how would you apply uh, the way God's righteousness is revealed in society in the Old Testament in a, in a modern, non-theocratic uh, state? Well, we segue now from the righteousness of God to the immutability uh, and, and in part the veracity of God, the immutability of God. Immutability means God cannot change It's a closely related idea to uh, righteousness. Uh, The veracity of God is simply his integrity in relation to what is specifically said and promised in the word of his covenant. God does not and cannot lie. Uh, Titus 1-2, God who never lies. Uh, And the immutability of God is a more general doctrine Uh, that God does not change. So I have a number of texts, Psalm 102, uh, you are the same uh, and your years uh, have no end. Uh, Malachi 3.6, for I the Lord do not change. Uh, James 1, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Uh, We shouldn't shouldn't use this uh, notion to think of God in some way as uh, static, Uh, like a statue, doesn't change in that way, Uh, nor should we allow this uh, doctrine of the immutability of God to lead to uh, ideas, Greek ideas, for example, of the unmoved uh, mover. Um, What what this is saying to us is that God is dependable, uh, that he's not uh, whimsical or arbitrary or unpredictable. Now, there are two problems. Uh, One is the, the so-called repentance of God. God repents, or perhaps better translation would be that God relents. Uh, you're familiar with these passages uh, uh, where God says one thing and then, and then there's a prayer, uh, and then God changes, seems, seems to change his mind, seems to go back on, on what was his intention. Uh, very famous uh, one in uh, Jonah, for example. And you're all familiar with these passages in the Old Testament where where the text seems to suggest that God repents or God uh, relents or changes his mind. And how is that compatible with immutability? And I'm suggesting here uh, that you should keep in mind four things. One, God does not change in his essential being. Verse, uh, page 12. You don't have a page 12? Oh, there's another knot here. Sorry. These are done, you know, on the hoof, like today. Um, right, let me, let, me, let me make sure that everybody gets this right. God does not change in his essential being or attributes. God does not change in his essential being uh, or attributes. Uh, His attributes define him. Uh, And if his attributes were to change, he would change. Secondly, God's decree, uh, or sometimes the will of his decree, does not change. Uh, The plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Uh, God's covenant faithfulness doesn't change. His commitment to the covenant, his commitment uh, to do the right thing, his commitment to his promise 
and threat doesn't change. When God enters into a covenant, it cannot be broken. Uh, God's revealed truth doesn't change. In distinction to postmodernity, where, 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 where truth is relativized. When God reveals something to be true, it is always true. It never changes. So, what do you do with these uh, so-called uh, repentings in God or relentings in God? Well, one thing you can do, and, and the traditional thing to have done with those, is to say they're anthropomorphisms. They're, they're God speaking to us like little children and, and saying, it looks to us as though he's changed his mind. He, he wants you to pray. He wants you to ask. He, 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 wants, he wants you to enter into the difficulty of the decision. But God knew what he was doing all along. Uh, and, and these are just, uh, these are just uh, God accommodating himself to our frail human understanding. He's, he's speaking to us as though we're little children. But we understand, of course, that God doesn't really change in his eternal decree. That's, that's one traditional way of dealing with these uh, so-called repentings in God. Uh, another way, and, and one that I'm uh, more, more and more drawn to, uh, one that Vern Poitras has been uh, alluding to in the recent years at uh, Westminster Seminary, uh, that in God's temporal uh, omnipresence, um, uh, God, uh, God in his transcendence never changes, but God is also present with us. Uh, let me put it in the way that he puts it. He views the events of yesterday as in the past and the events of tomorrow as in the future. So, so when God in his, uh, in his imminence, not in his transcendence, but when God in his imminence uh, is, is present everywhere... Uh, he is present then in the course of history. Uh, which, so, so there can be change associated with God's uh, imminent presence, but not with God's transcendent uh, presence. That may be a way of uh, addressing the issue of so-called uh, repentance um, in God. Second problem, incarnation. What about the incarnation of Jesus? And of course, uh, the incarnation of Jesus didn't change anything in the deity of Jesus. His deity remained absolutely the same. He took to himself something that he didn't have before. He took human nature. But that, that didn't change or alter in any way his divine nature. It altered his person in that his person now has two natures, but it didn't alter his nature, his essence. Well, we'll come to that uh, when, we, when, we, when we talk about Christology, uh, perhaps sometime in the spring, uh, when we come to talk about all things Jesus. Um, but uh, there it is, the righteousness and the immutability of God. And if uh, that doesn't... Uh, that doesn't raise a few questions, uh, then, then nothing, I think, will. Again, a reminder uh, to, to send in questions either to the address uh, there on the bottom of page 12 uh, or uh, uh, the Facebook uh, page uh, for this uh, course. Uh, and uh, those of you technologically savvy uh, can, uh, can tweet your uh, question for, for next, uh, next week. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you. Thank you again. You are righteous. You love righteousness. You do righteousness. We thank you for 
the righteousness that is revealed in the integrity and uh, obedience of our Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus. It is in him that we are reckoned to be righteous. We come pleading his righteousness. Look upon us, O Lord, and do the just thing, because, because we are clothed in the gospel with the righteousness of Christ. And you can never leave us or forsake us. It is the right thing for you to do, the just thing, as John so dramatically puts it. You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we, uh, we, we, just, uh, we just look into these ocean depths of your being and uh, we cannot see the bottom. Uh, you are unfathomable. You are beyond finding out. We, we wade into these waters, but so quickly we find ourselves uh, not being able to touch the bottom. And uh, there are depths and mysteries in your being that we can never fathom. We worship you. We adore you. We love you. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Now bless us tonight. Uh, Fill us with your spirit. Give us a love for the scriptures. Give us a zeal for the gospel. Give us a love for one another. A burden for the lost. We ask it all uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.